basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, we're going to talk about robots, or to be more precise, we're going to talk about automation and robotics in space. And for my money, we couldn't have a better guest for that discussion. Dr. Cameron Ower is the Chief Technology Officer of McDonald Detweiler & Associates, where he's been working for much of the last 35 years. When he started at MDA, he worked with, and for, the engineers who had designed and built the very first space robot, the original Space Shuttle Canadarn. His job at the time was to design the next generation of space robot, Canadarm 2, which was the space station arm and its special purpose dexterous manipulator, say that three times fast, known as Dexter, the first robot to live and work permanently in space. And today he's helping lead the team of engineers that is designing the Canadarm 3, the robot that will help humans work and live farther from home than we ever have before. And that makes him a Terranaut in my books. Dr. Cameron Ower, welcome to Terranaut. Well, Ian, thanks thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk a little bit about the things that, that we've been doing in, in MDA over the years in relation to space robotics. It's a, it's a pretty, I'm biased, but it's a pretty exciting endeavor in my uh, mind. I, well, I, I'm, I'm biased too, but, but it's, it, you know, it's not everybody that gets to see their work on the back of uh, their nation's currency, right? So um, for those of you who don't know, the Canadarm is on Canada's $5 bill. So, um, so but let's, as we always do in these interviews, let's start at the beginning. Where, where did you uh, grow up? I was born on the East Coast in Halifax, spent a, a couple of years in Ottawa, but then I've spent the most of my life in the, around the Toronto area in, in various spots and certainly working in the, in the Toronto area. And, and so when did you grow up? I mean, were you interested in the space program growing up? Was it something that you knew about, heard about? Well, most definitely, and, and I think this brings me back to when I was a kid in Ottawa and uh, with the first moon landing. I don't know if I paid much attention, although my parents, I think, were watching things on the TV before that, but the moon landing certainly is a pretty vivid memory, sitting there very late at night, which was a treat because you were yes. a little kid, Yes. and, how, how old and were you watching that. How old were you at the time of, the, of Apollo? Yeah, so I was, I was uh, this is 1969, so I was about eight years old, right. just before, yeah, just about to turn eight. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty exciting stuff. And, uh, and it continued, I mean, in, in school, I, the other thing I remember is in classroom, which was always great when they rolled the TV into the classroom. Yes, always, always a good day. It was a good day. But in this instance, you know, the, the missions that were happening after that, they, they were having the TV on in the classroom. I mean, teachers were smart enough to know this was right, history. Right. It was inspiring. And for, for kids, it, it was cool. You were watching astronauts yeah. walking on the moon, later driving on a... Uh, All the rover. rover. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was really kind of the golden age of the, you know, the space age. It didn't... Going to space didn't have a lot of competition in the news media as the, as the, the edge of technology in those days. It really was easier to capture people's imagination, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in being involved in the subsequent endeavors, not so directly on this on the space shuttle arm, but certainly on Canadarm. I've kind of looked back 
a little enviously, actually. I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited by the stuff that's gone on in developing Canadarm and Dexter and then the work that's come since then. But there's no doubt that I think the excitement or the undivided attention that, that people were playing on the, on the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo missions, it's, it's unprecedented. It's, it's the high watermark. It's what we all kind of in the space world aspire to again. So by the time you were thinking about university, were you still interested in space? I'm interested in in the sense that it was inspiring. I can't say though, as I went into engineering, um, that that was my goal. You know, I'll get an engineering degree mm. and I'll, I'll work in space. I yeah, I, I kind of think about this looking back. Um, part of it was still a kind of a sense of this is really inspiring and really impressive, but maybe a bit of an exclusive endeavor. <laughs> and even though I got into engineering, and you know, that in a sense would be a prerequisite as one of the types of roles within this, you know, the space technology development. It, yeah, it didn't seem like, it seemed like something that was pretty special. It, it, it's funny, that's in some ways, that's why I started Terranauts, because I think a lot of people even, you know, today, um, young people I talk to the same way, they, they hear the talk when they have the careers talk from astronauts, and they think it's really interesting, and it makes them interested in science, but they kind of think the space business is something that only really exceptional people do. And, you know, the whole point of Terranauts is that there are an awful lot of accidental Terranauts, people who <laughs> end, end up there and, and end up being involved in really exceptional things. I mean, you and I have both been, you know, been at, uh, you know, been, been there to see history made, but not really, uh, we don't really think of ourselves as being exceptional in and of ourselves, right? No, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And, I, and it, it, it's on the outside, you just don't appreciate that. Of course, the benefit of now working in the, in the industry uh, for over 30 years, I mean, I have a much better appreciation. And like you said, I mean, I talk to, to new grads or ones that are pondering, you know, I'm kind of interested in what you're doing, but is that, you know, what will that really involve or will I really enjoy that? Or will I have a, you know, a, a very appropriate question as a young person, will I have a career doing this? Will, right. it, will, it, will it be stable and good right. and exciting? Well, and Well, I guess we're both testaments that yes, in fact, you can. <laughs> um, so, but you kind of actually, so you did actually though end up in the, in the space business, although your first job in the space business was almost your last after a very short period of time, right? Yeah, well, I, I yeah, in, in engineering, towards the end of undergrad, I, I I started to maybe do some things or get exposed to some things that were driving me closer to to getting into the space world. At the uh, I got interested in control systems, and that led to you know what are exciting things to to design control systems systems for. When I went into grad school, robotics was a big thing. It was just it was really becoming a, a major field. Schools were were introducing undergrad courses. Grad schools were focusing on theses that were involving robotic design. So that that got me interested in robotics. And then as I looked out, maybe it didn't seem like quite as much of a leap to apply to to space companies. Although I I joined SPAR, which became you know part of MDA and and uh, on the on the spacecraft side with RadarSat, and I I got kind of a hard introduction to this the space world, its cyclic nature. And, you know, dependence on governments wanting to do things like space exploration or major satellite programs. And I, I worked very briefly on RadarSat 1, and I was about two or three months in, and the government put a hold on the program, and then suddenly I needed to look for work elsewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, like you say, it's a situation that just about everybody who works in space confronts eventually. Maybe it was better to get out of the way right at the beginning. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I it, it was it was a bit discouraging. I certainly went went and looked back at companies outside of space that I might move to, but I was I was lucky. I mean, I think yeah. like all things in life, you need to be lucky. And yeah, well, things things seem to have worked out worked out where you end up landing up. So, uh, and that was that was still at Spar at the time, but this time in Brampton, working for the robot the actual robotics division, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was 1986 and it was just the beginning of the, of the space station program um, that there'd been work done and certainly in NASA and, and companies in the States and certainly at, at, at SPAR or MDA um, in sort of conceptual development. But it, by 86, it was really a program that was starting in earnest. The commitments had been made. And I, as I said, you, you, you need to be lucky in life and, uh, and I, yeah, I, I got in on kind of in the first year or so of the, of the, of the main program um, in, on robotics. So it was interesting. I'd started on spacecraft stuff in, in MDA and in, in Montreal, but then this, this timing had allowed me to get back to robotics in space. Wow, what a wow. combination. Now, the guys that were starting up that program were just finishing up the, I mean, that was really the, the Canada Arm was just sort of leaving its initial operational capability phase, if you want to call it that, right? In in eighty six, it it flew first in like eighty one or something, right? Exactly. So there there'd been five years of operations, uh, all of the you know many different scenarios had already been tried out with the system. Um, many of those engineers were still working on the shuttle program. There was a large core group of people that were working on that, but then probably a couple of years before I had started uh, in the robotics uh, group, um, they'd been looking at concepts for, for the space station robotics and people who'd cut their teeth <laughs> developing um, the, uh, the Canada arm and then operating it, started to look at, okay, how do I evolve that idea to this even more ambitious space robotics system that was gonna help build the station and then maintain it. It's quite an environment for a young engineer on basically their first job um, to walk into that that's quite a room to give your first presentation to <laughs> yeah I mean it, 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 I mean it was it's one of those kind of uh, glass half full glass half empty you can be intimidated by by the, you know these people have done all these things and here I am just a, a young engineer who hasn't done anything but I think it's a testament to the to the uh, the people that I was working with, I kind of look at it. I love this phrase, kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, right. and I kind of looked at them as giants because they'd they developed the Canadarm in the mid, you know, from the mid seventies on. It was a very unprecedented thing. I think the one thing people don't know about with the Canadarm is that that back then Spar hadn't developed a robot ever. Right. This was like right. it wasn't just no, the no, first. I'd... Space robot. Canada's history in space was communication satellites, right? I mean, we we, exactly. we had no human, no no human spaceflight experience or even pretensions to have any uh, until literally that time, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think that I, I kind of looked at these these people that I was working with. I was at the beginning of the hiring wave on that on that program. So I had I was when I talk about being lucky, I think it was not only getting in at the beginning of the program, but being one of the earlier new hires, working with all of these, these really experienced people. And it helped because they were, they, they were really willing to kind of impart what they'd learned, but they were also encouraging of, okay, but this system has to do that much more. And it, and it, it was my first introduction to kind of how do you build on, on what's proven 
and yet innovate and, yeah. and develop well, the next capability. I mean, my experience of, of the, of the, you know, of those folks, and I experienced a lot of those when I worked at NASA. I mean, I, when I was at JSC, there were some people around who'd been around during Apollo, right? Mm -hmm. So um, <laughs> they didn't, that was the very end of their careers, but I, I didn't meet some. And, and, you know, I think the, the thing that, that really impressed me about them a lot was their pragmatism. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, they, they just, they, the voice of experience, as one, as one, I remember in one review, somebody started his comments by saying, well, like any other program run by human beings. And, and it was that, that sense that regardless of anything else, there are just limits on what you can do. And you just have to, you have to design around those limits, whether you like it or not. Yeah, yeah, no, I think mo most definitely. I think it, it, it's kind of a, an interesting combination of, of respecting the, some of the boundaries that you've experienced in getting to that point, but yet knowing that you need to, you, you need to push that a bit farther. And that, that's a really tricky balance. There's no, there's no, I mean, it seems like a really creative endeavor, but it's kind of striking that balance between the, the build on what you have, but yet advance, uh, advance things. Uh, it's, you have to be way more creative to make things work in the real world than, yeah. than, than, than in the lab. That's, it, it doesn't feel like that some days when you're going through code reviews and, and all of the discipline that you have to go through, but, but figuring out how to bring innovation with discipline is way, requires way more creativity than just starting with a blank sheet of paper, right? It does. It does. It's a, it's a far more constrained, but in a good way, problem yeah. if, you, if, you, if you look at it the right way. So what sure. did you bring to the process? You got the, the guys who've seen it all and done it all or think they have when you walk through the door. Um, but what, is, what, is the new, uh, what do the new people in the room bring to that process? Yeah, back back then in the in the kind of the mid to late '80s, I mean, there were a few things that were were changing. Um, computing, yes, the, the notion of a per, of a personal computer was. I mean, I, I they were just starting to be rolled out in the business, if you can believe it. And as a new engineer, this the second factor combining the computing. You know, the new engineers, some of them were getting the PCs because they were the also the people that were starting to use the early forms of computer aided design tools. So in my, in my field of control systems, you know, what the teams had done in the late 70s, it was it was fundamentally kind of writing out your equations, um, using calculators, maybe programming stuff that's sent off to a to yeah, a slide rules and punch cards, right? That's... Yeah. So it was a, it was a very yeah. I mean, I, the punch cards, you, you bring it up. I mean, the, the, what boggles my mind on the on Canada Arm development is a lot of the system was both designed and verified using numerical simulation, really, really advanced for its time, dynamic models of the flexible body dynamics of the arm, the servo dynamics and the control laws, and electronics, all done by developing from scratch because there were no kind of canned or commercial tools for that, developing all of those equations and algorithms, coding those, punching them on cards and then sending them off each night to a to a mainframe computer in in somewhere in Toronto, and then the next day waiting with bated breath for the for the uh, the printout to go and to find out maybe that there was a, a bad yes. uh, coding oh, error God, yes. in in line ten, and, and now yeah, you've got yeah, to yeah. 
back and, again. And, so, yeah, well, it was the user interface before graphical user interface, right? <laughs> so, but yeah. did, did you did you own a PC as a kid growing up or in, in university? Was that a technology that you were fairly comfortable with? Um, I, I, I was in, in between in the sense that I, in grad school, I was using kind of interactive um, kind of uh, PDP-11 type yeah, okay. computers. Okay. And so I was in the kind of the smaller kind of interactive workstation. So I, I was comfortable doing that. I was doing programming and simulation in grad school. So it was a natural, okay, you're the new guy. You're, you're somewhat comfortable with that. And so I got to I got to try out some of the the the, the first. Yeah, how, how do we use this fancy personal computer thing, new guy? Right. <laughs> yeah, personal computer or tools that people are just standards like MATLAB and or kind of predecessor those types of things. So that was that, that was one thing. I think that the general kind of more graduates were coming in with an awareness of robotics it, when the Canada Arm was designed. Robotics wasn't that big a thing. It wasn't a program in school. So that wasn't all of the people that were coming in, but that was another component. So, so I guess that. that's true. The guys that built the first Canadarm kind of invented the discipline because they didn't have textbooks to go to, right? No, they were really people. They were mechanism, talented mechanisms people, like dynamicists. The control systems knowledge had come more maybe from attitude control than it had from, wow. from, you know, from joint control. Interesting. Or, coordinated action. So that was a bit, that was a bit different. Um, yeah. I mean, I think those are the things that kind of stand out for me back, back then. So, so what, so your job though, was very much at the design end of, of both Canada arm two and, and you can now explain to the world what a special purpose dexterous manipulator is now that I can say it right. Uh, anytime you like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I spent, in the kind of the first 10 years, about four years working on the conceptual design and early design of Canadarm2. And then I moved over to Dexter. It wasn't called Dexter. It was no. PDM. Yes. Yeah. Dexter's a much better the, name, by the way. Yeah, I know. Credit to the, to, the, to, to, the, to the CSA for kind of looking for a, yeah, a little bit more memorable name than, than SPDM. And, and it, there was a lot of, um, lots of trade studies about features that were going to be in this system. And, if, and some of those seemed really important, but they fell by the wayside as, as we got to later stages in the, in the development. Um, I mean, it was compared to Canadarm, the Canadarm 2 and Dexter, really Dexter was meant to be not, not as good as an astronaut, but to some degree a substitute for an astronaut's, you know, standing on the portable foot restraint right, of right. Canadarm, but in this case on the end of Canadarm to being positioned to do servicing operations. So there was a little bit of even more of this kind of how does a robot get designed as to some degree an equivalent, not an exact anthropomorphic no. equivalent of, a, of a, an astronaut. And, and, but, and what were the big things that were hard about that? Well, I think that if you look at the kind of the evolution from Canadarm to Canadarm 2, those systems were handling, you know, retrieving spacecraft for servicing, moving large objects around. Canadarm2 extended that to being a system that would help actually build the space station. As you, as you know, it, it took about 30 missions to bring all the elements up. Dexter had yet another dimension in the sense that it had to, in some form, do some of the tasks, not all that an astronaut would do on a spacewalk. So that really 
took things down to a finer level where you're actually assembling and repairing. Well, your, yeah, because I mean, the original candid arm was just a, it really was, it was a robot, but it was really a way of moving one thing, uh, you know, objects from one place to another. It did not manipulate them in any way. It, it just moved them. Um, it was a robot. I mean, it, it probably people don't appreciate because we're so used to it now, but it was a robot in that it would figure out the the human would say i want to go you know this far to the left or this far right and no matter how the arm was oriented it would figure out how to move in a straight line in the direction that the astronaut wanted it to go which which is actually not a trivial thing to do when you have six degrees of freedom that you're dealing with right um, that's right yeah um yeah. but but uh you know by the time you get to dexter like you're actually talking about picking things up and and does it it can it actually transfer things from hand to hand and and yeah there were all sorts of capabilities from handoffs to one arm acting as a stabilizing element for the long chain of the of the canadarm one of the key things and it was a lesson out of the canadarm development was could actually both canadarm 2 and dexter have a sense of touch using some sort of force oh, okay. and sensing. And could, could that be used to control loads at the tip of an arm, particularly for Dexter, because Dexter was going to do tasks where it was going to replace batteries and right. uh, electronics right. boxes and gas canisters. And that would be involve an action that's kind of like what we do at home, like when we, right. when we put a drawer into a chest of drawers and yeah, remove yeah, it, yeah. there's that there's that, that challenge of whether you'll wedge or jam so that Dexter had to be armed with this ability to sense forces and moments and to control them and stop those, you know, possible wedging or jamming type. Yeah, type so so it's really, it's it's not even so much the manipulation that was the issue, it was replacing that human perception. Uh, Absolutely. That, that, yeah. was the, that was the issue, that was the advance. Yeah, and that's that's a little bit of what continues to happen in robotics is, is, is adding additional forms of sensing so that you can know your environment and interact with it. This was critical to maintaining the station when, a, when, a, when Dexter was doing one of these repairs versus an astronaut. An astronaut thinks nothing of it. They have this oh. really complex yeah, set of yeah. sensors in their bodies. The robot is, a poor, is, is relatively poor compared to a human being when it comes to sensing. So yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that robots manipulate more precisely than humans, but but the problem is they just can't. They don't have the human perception to know how precisely they're 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 doing things. Exactly, they they have that ability to both repeatably and often at a at a, at a far finer scale than a human yeah. being do that. But they lack the ability to know how to do that or where to do that or how well they're doing. <laughs> so, so is it fair to say that that's kind of been because. Because after you worked on on Canadarm two and Dexter, you, you've been looking at a lot of other uh, applications of of uh, robotics. But is is really that kind of been the the dialogue over the last twenty five or thirty years? Is how to move more of the perception into the robot so the robot can be less dependent on an operator? Is that is that a fair way of characterizing it? it it's a really great way to to describe it because in, in the end, with with robotics, um, it's really, we're working along a continuum from heavy or very strong involvement of a human being controlling the system. And controlling always, one thinks of what you do in terms of putting the inputs into a hand yes, controller yes. or the commands that you make. But the preceding action is the human operator looking, seeing, observing. Right. Right. And from those observations going, this is what I should do. Well, when you take, when you say to the, you have a task where you want the robot to do that automatically or autonomously, suddenly 
before they can do the control action, they need to actually sense the environment. They need to have good levels of perception. And that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's not a challenge just in space robotics. It's it's a, it's a challenge in robotics in, in, in general. And that's really where developments in companies like MDA have been going in the last uh, in 20 years. How do you improve that ability to know what the environment is so that you can impart increasing levels of, of, of uh, automation or autonomy in your system? The problem isn't just putting the ability to perceive things into the robot, though. It's not just a technical challenge, right? Like, like a allowing the robot to use its perception is, is sometimes more than half the battle, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're we're seeing it today in, in relation to something like an autonomous car. But this this has been happening for years in uh, in, in in our experience in, in robotics. Very early, I mean, the Canadarm had automatic control modes from its first flight. They weren't used that much, and I don't I don't say that as a criticism. I think when when you're as an operator or the, the mission controller are responsible for the, for the mission being successful. We as human beings don't wanna relinquish control if we think that things are working well and it's, it, it's, it's very effective with the level of control that you're currently uh, acting, acting with. So I think this is a, this is a, is a at the best, best of times, it's a healthy tension between trying to advance automation where it actually improves automation or increases autonomy where it truly improves the operation, but it's gotta be where the operator or the people working around the robot trust it. And trust yeah. is, is, yeah. is something you don't just say, believe me, I've done some simulations or I right. did some tests. Right. Sometimes it's, it's repeated action. Sometimes it's just running in the background. Here's what the system would be doing if it was automated. Do, do, do you trust and it more? Even getting the space station to agree that that the robot could be controlled from the ground was quite a journey, right? It was because this was something in the in the early, very early two thousands that uh, some of my colleagues kind of looked at. They looked at concepts for it. Um, the technology was there far before the the willingness was there. And again, I don't say that as a criticism. This is this natural uh, adoption. Of, of more autonomous or automatic things, and it, it takes time. And 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 uh, you know, even today, I mean, operations are even with increasing levels of uh, automation. There's lots of people just watching the operation to make th sure that things are working okay. But to your example about about uh, controlling uh, Dexter or Canada Arm Two from the ground, yeah, it took it took probably another six or seven years. And really it was about gaining confidence, um, showing that, that, that there wouldn't be a lack of performance. Um, but there's a lot of stakeholders. It's not just one person. There's a lot of people involved in mission planning and, and control, all critical. They, they're the ones that have, have led us to the successes we've had. So it's this adoption of, of increasing levels of automation is it's a tricky thing. And if you're if you just say, well, the technology's there, right, you're right. just being stubborn, you're, you're going to fail. Yeah, well, I think, and you see, that to me is the voice of experience. So we frequently say on this show that you get to space by going to a lot of meetings. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's why. I mean, it, it's partly because, you know, belief is an act that you, or, or knowledge is an act you perform in your head, but belief is something that comes from something deeper. And I think understanding that, it's not enough to tell people that you know something. You have to get them to believe 
And, and that's a, that is something that comes with experience, right? It, it most definitely is. And I mean, it's, it is a key lesson for me that, I mean, while we're, you know, engineers and scientists are very rational people, it is very interesting when you get into some of these decisions. And if you really step back and try to be objective, you realize that, yeah, there's, there, there is, there is a little bit of this, this belief. I mean, there's a, a great, uh, a great saying in the, in the, in the shuttle program in the MER about, you know, in God, we trust all else, all others bring data. And I think that is, a, that's at the foundation of all of this, but we're still human beings in terms of our design decisions or how we operate things. And, and we just can't forget that when we're designing systems or, or operating them. So with the experience of done, doing that for 35 years now, now you find yourself sitting on the other side of the table as, as MDA embarks on, on the third space robot, Canada Arm 3. What's it, what's it like to be uh, the old guy who knows things in the room this time? <laughs> Well, um, yeah, no, it's it's an interesting experience, and it is. It, I must admit, I, I'm I, hopefully it's a helpful, healthy thing. I'm kind of looking back at, at my early days, and I think about that. I'm talking to lots of of young engineers. I'm talking to people who haven't joined MDA yet, or I'm talking to people who have just joined. In both cases, I have to say, I'm I'm acting. I feel like I'm acting in a good way as an advocate. I mean, I. I I, I've kind of lived through that cycle. I didn't work on as many of the details in the later parts of the of the program, but I've seen that, and I've kind of in, I've interacted with my colleagues on an ongoing basis. So I've seen that that whole life cycle, that whole development. Do, do you have the occasional Groundhog Day moment when you think, "Oh, I remember this. <laughs> I remember these conversations." <laughs> yeah, and I think that it's it's a it's a tricky thing because I think um, I, I kind of remember back to how those giants, as I referred to them, the, the people who I was learning from before, they struck this really impressive balance of being very willing to describe what had happened in the design, why they had done it, yet they did not stifle the, the idea, but it needs to be better, or we need, there's a certain new capability. So I, I think that it's, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I, I, I won't say I struggle with it, but I need to work at it constantly. I, I, I imagine you want to encourage people yeah, you want to encourage people that this, you know, what's been done before, but you want them to build on that. Well, it's, you know, your first reaction to a lot of the new things is, yeah, but that won't work. And then you go, well, or will it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think sometimes it's better. It's sometimes it's not what you say, but how you say it. But it, yeah. it, I mean, it may be, here's why we had done it this way before. Yeah. These were the considerations. This Here's what we knew. And uh, I remember these specific conversations with those people back in the 80s and early 90s, like, why did you do it that way? And I, because and I, part of it is I thought, hey, things are working pretty well. I don't want to, I don't want to throw away something that's really useful. On the other hand, there may be something that's not as critical and it, and it can be changed. So, um, yeah, as we start to look at concepts, um, yeah, I, I'm just excited to kind of talk to people. What are some of those decisions that they're they're making. I'm not working day to day, like an hour to hour in the program, but I'm I'm involved in these conversations. Part of it is to encourage people. I'm just excited to talk to people right now who are about to, who may join or have yeah. joined the company. So yeah. I'm saying you're really at the ground floor of a really oh, exciting next uh, next kind of generational development. It is. So so what do the what do the new people bring this time? Is it kind of the same as you that? they just understand technology that that you know people who haven't grown up with it don't and they 
they just inherently understand how that can be used in this situation or is it something else? And I think a lot of it is that way. I mean, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I've, I've been involved in hiring over the last couple of years and I've looked at resumes. I haven't been sitting in as many interviews, yeah. but what I'm struck by, and I'd noticed this even before the, the, the recent hiring and building up of the team for, for Canada Arm 3, the, the engineers in, in university, they're far more comfortable with hardware. If you look at particularly robotics, right. it's become a bit of a commoditized industry. Oh, you can, I mean, there, there are relatively cheap systems. Uh, if you want to learn about okay. things, yeah. you can, you know, whereas my generation, at yeah, least for was you, for you, yeah, a robot was a thing you went somewhere to build, not a thing you used in the lab, right? right? It was a very expensive thing or a bespoke, you know, the things yeah. we were developing were bespoke. We waited a long time to have early, a, a, a high fidelity prototype to try ideas out. These right. engineers, we can buy relatively inexpensive industrial components. We can yeah. integrate, at least in function, if not in total performance, equivalent systems. They're comfortable with that, that hardware. We were comfortable 30 years ago, at least with some programming. They're comfortable with embedded, you know, computer controlled hardware. And that's interesting. And in many of the capstone projects in undergrad or in grad school, they're just dealing with more physical systems. Uh, that impresses me because that's that whole yeah. and the innovation of trying things that allows you to maybe learn more quickly what works yes. and yes. what well, what well it's in, and I wouldn't have guessed that, but it's very true. But it, it's also because robots are so I mean, we have robots. We don't I mean, our cars are robots now. Right. right. We, we, we interact with robots all the time. Um, you know, in the 1980s, a robot was definitely a, a, a thing you could identify. And, and it was a you thing that unless you worked in the field, you didn't see very many of. Now, part of the work that, you know, has happened in the last 30 years is to make robotics so much more common that, that we don't have to study that part of it. We have to figure out how to advance it and how to use it now rather than how to create it, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that that's really true. Uh, so that impresses me. I mean, obviously, not obviously, but perhaps, but yeah, I think that their energy and, and their kind of desire to, to, to try new things that, that I think that happens in each generation, the characteristics of what they've learned in school, that's a little bit different. Their general comfort with computing, with data, with uh, interoperability between tools. I mean, that's just at another dimension. And that, that's important in terms of how we, we're, we're working more efficiently. One of the challenges that and not so much what the, the, the new people bring in, but what a new challenge that I know I didn't have as a young engineer is in our business, there's really a new commercial space industry, you know, which uses, which is going to use robotics. That wasn't there 30 years ago when I started. So they, they have another constraint in their work in the sense that we're looking at ideas that also, you know, will do these exploration purposes we're also looking at how do they translate into commercial things? And those are often at complete odds in terms of having a cost-effective yes, system versus a system that's a bespoke right, right. one-off that's it's done for exploration. So we're almost constraining them even more than the challenges yeah, yeah, in no, my generation. I hadn't had. thought of that either. That's very interesting. But uh, I mean, we're almost out of time. So let, let me just, um, you know, quick question. What are the things that you are most looking forward to in Canada Arm 3? What are the things that, you know, as someone who really understands robots, what is Canada Arm 3 going to be able to do that will really push the envelope? 
Yeah, so I think that the, 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 probably the thing that stands out the most, and if anyone's seen any kind of press about Canada so you, you'll often see the the term AI enabled. Yes, and 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 really, what the, at the heart of that is um, a constraint, somewhat artificial, but some to some degree, it's a it's a precursor to what will become a necessity of the of the system really operating without uh, operator intervention for all but eight hours a week. Wow. So that that, that, so that puts. Uh, a, a whole new premium on, sure on perception and kind of planning tools and on onboard levels of autonomy. Yeah. Um, so it is, it's a challenge. I mean, and I think, you know, I think that, uh, so whether it's AI or other form, you know, I mean, whether it's deep learning or machine learning or other forms of, of AI, um, how does that factor into planning, particularly if you're doing some form of replanning on orbit and the whole notion of, of real-time operations one of the things that kind of if you look at the ai challenges one of them is not just the what the system's doing in current operations there's a bunch of people in the mission control room or the mer that are actually just watching what's happening oh no i <laughs> mean looking. before it before the operation starts everybody stops whatever else they're doing and it's a thing right so i think this is an open challenge. I think there's good ideas and developments that are moving out, but this is going to be, this is going to be a challenge. I think that uh, the outpost is not as big as, as, as the space station. It puts some premium on greater interoperability between tools and maybe making do with slightly less assets or interchangeable assets to do particular purposes. So there's a kind of a suite of interoperable tools interfaces become important as they were on, on, on so, the station. So we're getting much closer to what we all think about as a robot, something that's not only autonomous, but adaptable um, and, and not rather than being something that a human operator drives, it's uh, something that does a lot of the work and a lot of the, even the thinking on its own. That's, that's a big change. It is. Yeah. No, it's, so it's, it's moving along that continuum where Canada arm was really a almost exclusively teleoperated. Yes. Uh, operation Canadarm2, as you noted, you know this whole move to ground control that happened kind of after about uh, well six or seven eight years and yeah. on on station, um, still fairly scripted operations even yes. then, yes, um, and and still a premium on using the available camera views for other kind of monitoring uh, mission controllers or. Or operators to kind of make sure we're we're healthy. That yeah, looking over his like shoulder that. all the time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's really re it reducing the 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 number of people that are that are that are uh, planning or are operating the system. In some cases, really almost really a, a lights out type operation. This is going to be a challenge. Yeah. Um, well, it's and, it's uh, a it's a big change. I, I don't <clears throat> people who haven't worked in the mission control environment probably don't understand how big a change. Uh, going to be some interesting meetings about that functionality, I can tell you. Um, probably already have been some interesting meetings about that functionality. Well, that's right, because that's back to what we were talking about earlier in our conversation, which yeah. is this whole letting go of a bit more control over, yeah. over time. And this is, this is one of those. So at, at the end of the day, it's kind of a theme. Uh, it's how do, you, how do you strike that balance of you know what worked before, which would say continue to have exactly yes, the yes. same level of human interaction yes. 
with the system, and yet you're you've got a new constraint that says you need to you need to put that to one side. So how do you preserve the the safeguards that said this was a safe system, uh, a safe and effective system, but now you're relying on a, an increasing level of autonomy. So I, to say that all of those problems are solved or addressed no. yet? No, I don't, I don't think they are. They're not even defined yet. Wow. Well, you know that's going to be a fascinating journey to watch, and I'm I am definitely going to enjoy sitting on this side of the table and watching people solve those problems. Uh, <laughs> but I will definitely enjoy seeing the fruits of that. And, and I'm really glad that you came on Terranauts today to talk to us about it. I wish we had more time, actually. There's lots of other things I could ask. Um, <laughs> but uh, Dr. Cameron Ower, thank you for being a guest on Terranauts today. Well, thanks so much for, for having me on, Ian. I, I appreciate it. Right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Terranauts. As usual, if you'd like to support the show, Please feel free to rate us or review us on your podcatcher app, respond by leaving us some feedback, or recommend us to a friend. Next week, we'll have another episode in A Terranaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet. I hope to talk to you soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.